Our God, we ask that you would speak to us in your word, that you would show us your son, and that you would give us life through your spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So this past week, I celebrated my 40th birthday. Thank you to all of you who sent cards and birthday wishes. Uh, it was a real reminder of how special this family is, is to me. And it, it, was, it was a real special day. For some time, the, the thought of, of turning 40 has, has triggered a lot of reflection in me about life. It seems like this strange kind of halfway point where you're a combination of looking back and looking forward. And I, I won't go as far as to say I've had a midlife crisis, but I will say that something has been stirring deeply in me over the past uh, year and a half. And I really, I haven't, I've talked about it with very few people. Um, and it goes back to November of 2019 when Brent died. And for those of you who don't know Brent, he was an elder here. He was a husband. He was a father. And to me, he was the closest of brothers and friends. And his, his death hit everyone differently. But for me, it, it shook my faith in an unexpected, unexpected way. And it was the night he passed away. Almost everyone had left. And I was sitting there alone with him in the room. And it was so, it was so quiet. Uh, it was so still, and there was a strange sense of, of my friend is there, uh, but he's not there. And I couldn't help but look at him and, and, and face this haunting question of, is all of this that we believe and that we talk about, is it really true? And... This journey of faith was something that he and I were on. We were on together. You know, we had talked together. We had prayed together. We had dreamed together. We had fought together on this bigger mission. We were a part of this work that we believed God was doing. And, and then just then, just like that, he was gone. And people around me were saying, um, in an encouraging way, he's in a better place, but I found myself, if I'm honest, wondering, is he just really gone? Is this, what if this is, what if this is all that there is, this, this present existence? And what if what we're doing even here is just kind of a complicated adult version of, of make-believe that's meant to, to make people feel better? What if at the end of the day, I'm kind of a religious CrossFit coach. <laughs> and what I do is I, I motivate people every week to stay emotionally fit. And I help people connect in relationships. What if this is all kind of a game that we're just playing? Is, is, is my friend, is he truly gone forever? And so for me, that's the question. Is all of this really true or not? And that may not be the kind of question that you want your pastor asking. If you're visiting, that may not be. 
the, the kind of question you want your church talking about, but I do believe it's a question that we all must face. And one of the reasons why we're going to be looking into 1 John this fall together as a church family is it because it is speaking into that question, a question that I think resonates with many, but a question also that has haunted me over this past year. And I don't know where everyone is in this room, but experience tells me that there are a lot of different people in a lot of different places at, in a room like this. But wherever, wherever you're coming from this morning, I want you to consider these very old words before us and ask some very simple questions. Number one, is it real? Number two, is it good? And number three, is it for us? And I want us to consider those questions one at a time. So first, is it, is it real? Often when we talk about the Bible being God's words to us, it's easy to think about the Bible as kind of a magical book that just mysteriously dropped from the sky one day and we discovered it and began reading it and, and applying it to our lives. But we need to remember that it, it was written by specific people with personal stories, written to specific people with their own personal stories for specific purposes. And so in trying to make sense of what's being said in here, we're always trying to connect these dots of who wrote it and when did they write it and who did they write it to and what does it mean for us? Where do we fit in this bigger story. And when we come to this particular letter, the author doesn't identify himself in any way, but church tradition from the earliest days and different connections with other writings in the scripture, specifically the gospel of John and a lot of different reasons I can't go into right now. But these words before us, we believe were written by none other than the disciple John. So what do we know about John, the heart and the mind behind these words that we're reading this morning and that we'll be looking at this fall. We know that he was a fisherman by trade with his brother, with his father, until a man came along and said these words, follow me. And we heard that he left everything and began following this new teacher. We find out that John was not only one of the original 12, but he was what a part of what you might call the inner circle of Jesus in this close place with, with his brother James and with Peter. In his gospel that he writes, he identifies himself when he puts himself into the story. He identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he doesn't write that in a kind of boasting, arrogant way to say, God, Jesus loved me more than everybody else, but He's communicating to us in a very subtle way that this is what's most important about me. This is how I think about myself as as one whom Jesus loved. And that's what I'm writing as. It was John who took in Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his home, caring for her as his very own mother. As Jesus gave her away, as he was going to be crucified, and John took her in to love and care and support and provide for this mother who had just lost her world. 
He was an eyewitness to the crucifixion, to the resurrection. He would play a very prominent role in the early church, even being called a pillar. This kind of foundation. He would watch as many of his closest friends were killed. Even his own brother James was arrested and killed by King Herod. And eventually he would be exiled to an island because of his faith. And yet he's still, even then, he's writing these letters to to care for God's church and these people. And, and when I think about what sticks out to me about John, and I don't know if it's because of my own experience with Brent, but I think about what it might have been like for him to lose his brother James. From all accounts, James and John were incredibly close. And then one day, because of being a part of this movement, Someone in power takes a sword and ends his brother's life. It was like they were in it together, and then one day, he was gone. And I think if all this is made up, in my mind, this is the perfect time for John to say, I'm out. You know, all of this is made up. We were young. We were stupid. We, we loved the kick it gave us of being popular, of traveling to different cities. We liked this following. This would have been a perfect time for him to say, this has gone way too far. But what we set out to do has gotten out of hand. I've lost my brother. My other best friend, Peter, is actually going to be crucified upside down. If I'm in his shoes and all this is made up, that's where I pull the parachute and say, I'm I'm out. This is not worth it. This game is no longer fun. It's not real. I'm done. But think about what we hear from John in these opening words from this letter. What he tells us is he says, there's something I've seen with my own eyes. There's something that I've heard with my own ears. There's something that I've touched with my own hands. There's something real. There's something important. There's something that has changed my life. Something that is beginning to change the world. Something that I cannot walk away from and give up on. Something that matters to me more than anything. Something that we are living for and something that we are dying for. And it's this thing, John says, that I'm proclaiming to you. It's this thing that I want you to experience. It's this thing that I want you to know. That I want you to love. It's this thing that is real. In light of what John's been through, I find that compelling. That doesn't answer all of my or or your objections to, is this really real? But I find it personally encouraging and a good start. When we ask the question, is this real? Here we have someone who was there and who saw with his eyes, who heard with his ears, who touched with his hands, and who says to us, I'm proclaiming to you what's true. And that brings us to our second question. Is it good? As 21st century Americans, we love what's new. We love new electronics, new clothes, new TV shows, new music, new games, new cars. We're always following what's trending. We're 
all drawn to what's shiny and bright and new. And there is, what that reveals is an underlying belief um, in our culture, but also in us, that the life that we are looking for, that we're searching for, is found in what's new. It's, it's not found in these old things. They haven't delivered, but it's got to be found in what's new. This thing that John is talking about, that he's proclaiming to us, is not something that is new in his mind. It's something that is incredibly old. He goes back in verse 1, that which is from the beginning, which echoes what he said in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, which echoes Genesis. In the beginning, John is using this play on words to say what I'm talking about is something incredibly ancient, something tried, something true. This is the source that we've been looking for. It's not made up. It's not created. It's something that is. It's not a fad that's meant to give us a a quick hit. It's the source of life itself. And it's this old something that John's proclaiming to us. And it has to do with what he calls in verse 1, this word of life. So earlier this year, it's really fascinating, but if you've tracked it at all, the Mars rover Perseverance landed and is taking up collections. If you go back into the science and the technology and all that had to go in for this thing to land successfully and to do its mission, it's amazing. But they, NASA states the purpose of this billion, multi-billion dollar rover and what they're trying to do. They say the purpose is to seek ancient signs of life and collect samples of rock and soil for possible return to earth. One of the driving questions behind this mission and this rover is the question that many of us asked before, is there life out there? But when we ask that question, what we are really asking is, is there biological life? Are are there organisms out there? Plants, animals, the basic forms of life beyond this planet that we live on. John, in his letter and in his other writings, talks a lot about life. But it's easy for us to miss the kind of life that he's talking about. Because in English, what we have one word for, Greek has two words for. There is bios and there is zoe. Bios, if you are a biologist, what you do is you spend your life studying living things, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can taste, what you can touch. That's life. That's bios. Zoe is a different kind of life. It's hard to describe, and we don't have a good English word that captures it, so we just throw the word life on there. But it's meant to describe the kind of life, the kind of thing that we were made for and that we long for. It's something that Jesus talks about all the time, something that we can't touch or measure. Jesus himself says, I have come that you might have zoe and have it abundantly. I am the bread of zoe. I am the way and the truth and the zoe. But what we're seeing here in John's letter is that this Zoe isn't kind of a mystical force that just gets 
transmitted back and forth impersonally. It's something that has come into our world. This Zoe, this life of God has become manifest in our lives. It's broken in in a real, tangible way. Verse 2, this Zoe was manifest and we've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal Zoe, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And whether, in other words, when John looks at Jesus, he says, that is Zoe. That is the Zoe of God. That's what we were made for. It's what we long for. It's what we are looking everywhere else for and craving for. And it's found in him. Remember the beginning of John's gospel when he says this word, the Zoe, it became flesh. Made his dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. And from this fullness, we've received grace upon grace. When you read through John's writings, this letter in the gospel, you will see it's full of life. And John's trying to communicate that this life is from God. This life is God. And it's full. It's overflowing. It's free. It's abundant. And wherever it spreads, the result is joy. Gladness, the overflowing. Even if we don't know how to describe it, it's what we are all looking for in all sorts of different places. It's real, John says. It's good, John says. But then there's a final question we're going to consider, and that is, is it's for us? There's something that they are experiencing that they want others to share in. Verse 3, we're proclaiming these things to you, this life. Why? So that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I don't particularly like the word fellowship. It's a rich biblical word that has been watered down. So I think about, when I think about fellowship, I think about small talk before people get together and eat fried chicken. (laughs) And so when John says like, this is what we want to share with you, it just, it seems to fall a little flat, at least in my mind. But behind it is this, is this rich word koinonia. It's, it's community. It's, it's shared life. It's a word that John uses to describe the life that exists between the father and the son. He looks at the father, the father's love for the son and the son's, the son's love and delight and mutual honor and respect and love and life. And he says, that's koinonia. And then he says, we have been brought into that koinonia. And then he says, it's for you and we want you to be brought into it. And you being brought into it would complete our joy. Nothing would give us greater delight than seeing you come and be a part of this life that's trickled down. When you experience something special, you want to share it. Think about the times that you've said phrases like these. Um, Did you see that? Can you believe that? What did you think about that new movie? Wasn't it Awesome. Amazing. We say those things 
out of this overflowing desire to share a particular joy with other people. And that's what John is saying here. He's saying we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete because something, we have discovered something. Or maybe better put, something has discovered us. Something has found us that we want to share with you. This We could not find our way to this Zoe, this life. So guess what? This Zoe has found its way to us. But here's the kicker. In order for this Zoe, this life, to get to us, the pathway takes it straight through a shameful, painful, torturous wooden cross. Through guilt, through shame, through death. That is the pathway of Zoe to meet us in order for us to have this joy. In order for us to have this life, this Zoe had to travel an incredible path that reveals the heart of God for us. It's good news. And I want to kind of land the plane with this. It's good news, but it is not good news that everyone will embrace. And I don't, I don't really know why, but I, I feel compelled to tell you this. I'm, I'm not up here every Sunday because I love putting myself in front of people and bearing my soul. This is not therapeutic for me. I'm, I'm not in this to build a brand. I'm not in this to become an influencer. Uh, I'm not in this for the big paychecks or the golden parachute. And my elders have promised me I'm going to be able to pull when I'm 65 and float to the Caribbean. Uh, I'm not in here because of the low stress. It's just not, it's not part of I'm, I'm doing this because I believe it's real. I'm doing this because I believe it's good. And I'm doing this because I believe it's for us. It's for me. I want to close with a story that always resonates me from Jesus' life with his disciples. It's a time where he's starting to say These controversial things like I'm the bread of Zoe that's come down from heaven. And the people who have been following him begin to look at him and say he's crazy. Uh, We thought he was just a teacher telling us how to do good things. But the things that he's saying are a little bit out there. And you know what happens? They begin to leave. Uh, Not just in small pockets, but in droves. And Jesus looks around and everybody's gone. And his disciples are here. And he looks at them in the eye and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, for all the stupid things he said, he says something I think is incredibly beautiful. He looks at Jesus and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the word of life. Let's pray. God, there are days when we we want to go. We want to leave. We want to look around and say, is this this all it's cracked up to be? But you alone have the words of life. I don't know where uh, 
people are in this room as they hear these words, I pray you would meet each of us. We all wonder, we all question. Would you confirm in our hearts that this is real? It's, it's really real. That it's good. That it's really good. And that it's for us. Not because we have this great record of being good, but simply because you and your wisdom and kindness have chosen to love us with a kind of love that makes us feel really uncomfortable. We want to try to pay it back. And yet you just keep pouring yourself out to us. Would you meet us wherever we are? Give us this life in Jesus' name. Amen.